Coming to you from Brick House in downtown Brooklyn, this is 112BK. On the show today, Brooklyn City Council member Matthew Eugene seeks re-election. Gowanus grows and still overflows as it prepares for the next megastorm. And Halloween economics. Hi, I'm Ashley Ford, and thanks for joining us today. Show number four, if you count our pilot, which you can, and you can check it out on SoundCloud. Well, it's finally starting to feel like fall. Break out those woolens, hats, and damn, I needed gloves this morning. Just in time for November. I guess October is the new September. I love cold weather, though. I really do love it. I wish that we got a little bit more of it. Good show today. In our ongoing coverage of the upcoming elections, we have Matthew Eugene, city council member for the 40th district, which includes Crown Heights, East Flatbush, Flatbush, my neighborhood, and others. He's facing an unexpected challenge for re-election. And the Gowanus Canal is getting a makeover, hoping to prepare it for future extreme weather. There's some extreme weather on Sunday. Road was flooded out on Carroll Garden's side of the 3rd Avenue Bridge, sorry, 3rd Street Bridge. Well, they've definitely got their work cut out for them. And finally, Halloween, and a visit with a finance reporter to tell us that Americans will have spent about $9 billion this year on the holiday when all is said and done. But first, a few things. Okay, so I know you've heard and are still hearing about the indictment of Trump's former campaign manager, Paul Manafort, for money laundering, among other things. So you know about that. But what you might not know about is that there may be a monument to his alleged misdeeds right here in Brooklyn. He bought a property on Union Street in Carroll Gardens, apparently with some of his alleged ill-gotten gains tucked away in overseas banks. And then he took out a loan on that property, which last we heard sits vacant on the upscale block. It's been an irritation to his neighbors as its front yard becomes overgrown. It's a shell of a shell property. Another continuing story, Sandy, five years on. Are we ready for the next big storm? That's the question everyone seems to be asking. I think the answer might be emotionally, maybe. Infrastructure-wise, not really. And that's especially the case in Canarsie, which was badly hit five years ago. It's in the floodplain, and while most homes have been restored, they are still susceptible. Why? Because 80% of housing units are attached or semi-attached buildings, making them really hard to retrofit. And next, a look at the numbers. Today, 100 pounds. That's how much weed Brooklyn cops in Crown Heights stumbled upon last Friday when assisting Jersey City police in tracking down an arson suspect. When they entered a Crown Heights residence looking for the man, they actually found two different men and piles of pot. A hundred pounds is a lot of weed, but it pales next to the seizure of 3,000 pounds taken from a truck of a Brooklyn Heights man last year. Apparently, he was using the pot proceeds to fuel his passion for World War II memorabilia. Everybody's got a hobby. And now, a brief word about a couple musicians that have passed and their Brooklyn connections. First, Fats Domino, who died on October 24th. According to the Brooklyn Eagle, he played shows around the corner at Brooklyn Paramount Theater, now part of Long Island University campus. And these shows were instrumental to his rise to become what Elvis Presley considered the real king of rock and roll. And Lou Reed, who died four years ago on October 27th. Many may not know he was born in Brooklyn. Nice to commemorate him at this time of year. 
One of Reed's best tracks on the New York album was the melancholy song Halloween Parade, and he put on many Brooklyn shows throughout his career, including a reading of Edgar Allan Poe's spooky classic The Raven. Once upon a midnight dreary, while I pondered weak and weary. Stay with us for our chat with City Council member Matthew Eugene. All Brooklyn City Council incumbents won their Democratic primary contest in September. In a borough that votes mostly Democrat, that should mean smooth sailing to re-election. But incumbent Matthew Eugene finds himself in an unexpected general election contest for the City Council seat in Brooklyn's 40th. He's here to talk to us today about his 10 years in office and what the future for his district and Brooklyn may hold. Councilmember Eugene, welcome to 112BK. Uh, first and foremost, let me say thank you, Ashley, for inviting me. Well, it's a pleasure so to be with you. Here. It's a pleasure to meet with you. Um, just to start, you know, 10 years of civil service to reflect on. So you've served in city council under two mayoral administrations. What do you see as the greatest need for Brooklyn constituents, specifically yours? Let me first and foremost thank God for giving me the opportunity mm -hmm. to serve and the people who have been there with me and for me. Mm -hmm. to serve. And uh, 10 years is about, uh, you know, that's a lot of experience. Yes. And uh, let me say that, you know, before I didn't have any intent to go to government, mm -hmm. but I want to say now I love it because that gave me the opportunity to make a difference in the life of so many people. Right. Exactly. That's what I've been doing before I was elected. I created a non-for-profit organization called YES, Youth mm -hmm. Education and Sport. And through that organization, I was given to the young people and to the children, the opportunity they need to grow up and to become successful person in life. Mm -hmm. And I was giving also opportunity to their family members. Many of them, they are immigrant and they have, you know, a family with a very modest income. Right. And then being a council member, for me, is a position to serve, is an opportunity to serve, to continue to do what I've been doing. For right. example, in the area of health, Mm -hmm. For me, health should be on the top of the priority of government. Yes, tell me more about that, because, you know, we keep having these conversations about the health care mm -hmm. debate, and you're a medical doctor. Yes, sir. Um, so talk to me a little bit about this health care debate and how, like, how does it affect, um, you know, Brooklynites, and how does it affect people in your district, people like me? Absolutely. Let me tell you something. There's, as a matter of fact, in all communities, there is a big health disparity. Mm -hmm. and because, you know, Brooklyn, is home to so many immigrant people mm -hmm. and people also with very modest income. And uh, I think that, you know, it is my responsibility as a member of the government to fight and to do everything that I can do to ensure that everybody in my district get access to very low and affordable, high-quality health care. That's what I've been doing during 10 years. Right. I've been providing to Kings County Hospital, Mamonides Hospital, Downsey Hospital, Kingsbrook Hospital, millions of dollars mm -hmm. for them to buy state-of-the-art medical equipment, seven life medical equipment. Mm -hmm. And I've been providing them also with resources to be able to provide the best quality of care to the people. And remember, mm -hmm. all, many hospitals in New York City were closed. St. Yes. Mary, uh, St. Vincent Hospital, and also uh, uh, many of them. Mm -hmm. So that means the reason they were closed, Caledonian Hospital in my district, way before I was elected, mm -hmm. because they didn't have enough resources. I that the reason why, as a member of the city council, 
I've been fighting, fighting every budget to ensure that the hospital in my district receive the necessary resources they have in order to provide the best quality care to my constituents. In addition to, to health, education. Yeah, you, um, you actually have um, an initiative for education to make sure that classroom sizes are smaller, right? Absolutely. How is that? I'm wondering how that's feasible. You know, we're having Brooklyn schools closing because they don't have enough funding. So, I mean, when we talk about smaller class sizes, how do we accomplish that? We accomplish that by ensuring that, number one, we create more school. As a matter of fact, there's a new school just a brand new school in my district that I advocated for, mm -hmm. that I supported, supported on Konyan and Avenue. Yeah. A brand new, beautiful school. As a matter of fact, I was working with uh, DOT to ensure that Konyan become a very safe area mm -hmm. for the children. Right. Because Konyan is a wide street, mm -hmm. people have a certain tendency to speed up. And uh, now I was pleased to hear from DOT as a result of, of my effort they are going to put a traffic light to protect the children. Education, I used to teach mm -hmm. in my country before going to medical school. Wow. And I know firsthand the need of the schools. Mm -hmm. The school we may have good teachers, dedicated teachers, but the school need resources. Right. They need the resources to be able to provide the best education to the children. Mm -hmm. And that's the reason why also. I have been giving to all the schools in my district mm -hmm. millions and millions of dollars in order to provide education to the children. When I talk about education, I'm not talking about only mathematics, science, biochemistry, biology. Right. I'm talking about all the resources and information that we can provide and the skills, skills that we can provide to the children that can allow them to grow up mentally, physically, and become well-rounded mm -hmm. individuals. Right. That the reason I gave to the school of some money for after school program, mm -hmm. sport, music, you know. You've and invested art. heavily and you've allowed the room for investment um, in these areas, mm -hmm. which is commendable. Uh, one of the things that I was wondering is that um, there's something that happened with the election where uh, you got the plurality of vote, but you did mm -hmm. not get the majority of votes. Why do you think that is? Uh, let me tell you, before I, I say that, uh, I was mm -hmm. talking about education. I, I believe that education is, as a society, mm -hmm. the best investment that we can do for the children is in the education of the children. Right, expanding so, of the mind. Exactly, because they are lead, the leaders of, of tomorrow. Mm -hmm. uh, talking about the election, listen, I won the primary election, mm -hmm. and there were different candidates. Yes. Of course, the voters, they have their choices. Mm -hmm. Some people like this candidate, some people like this candidate. Right. But it's happened that I won the election because more people voted for me. Right. And, but it doesn't mean that the people who didn't vote for me won't vote for me for the general election. That is true. Because I met several of them. They say, Matthew, you won. That's you know, based on our democratic values. Mm -hmm. That's based on the core principle. We're going to vote for you this time. Right. Because uh, you know, we have what makes our country strong is our democratic process. Yes. We agreed to go to primary. Mm -hmm. So I won. Mm -hmm. So that means it should be, I'm the nominee right. for the party. So I applaud and I want to applaud and congratulate also with respect mm -hmm. my other opponent who came to me, we met, mm -hmm. and they said, Matthew, you won. Mm -hmm. And this is our democratic process. 
Now, we want to sit down with you, and I say, wonderful, we're going to work together right. for the community. But one of them doesn't respect the principle, mm -hmm. our core principle. One of them doesn't respect you know, our democratic principle, mm -hmm. and, and decided to come back again. But unfortunately, yeah. but I'm going to win again. Well, <laughs> you know, like, we'll see what happens. Um, Another thing that I wanted to bring up was that, you know, one of the things that I love about living in Flatbush is the diverse community and specifically the immigrant community um, that tends to focus there. A lot of people are worried with the current presidential administration, with things like the DREAM Act, you know, being revoked or things like, you know, DACA, you know, the countdown on that happening. With so many immigrants in your district, how can you, you know, have these conversations with them? Like, what would you tell them to be thinking or feeling right now? Let me tell you, I'm, I'm a, as a matter of fact, I'm an immigrant person. Mm -hmm. And I, I feel so fortunate I got my piece of American dream. And America is a land where everybody can come. You work hard, you want, you are dedicated to help and to contribute to this, this country. You can have your piece of American dream. Mm -hmm. I think that all immigrants who are here, they deserve the same chance, mm -hmm. the same opportunity. I want to let you know that I was the one who wrote the resolution for the Haitian TPS. Oh. And I, want, I was the one also who wrote the resolution for Nepal TPS, mm. for Philippine TPS. I've been in the forefront of immigration you know, advocacy because mm -hmm. I know that the United States is a country created by immigrants. Yes. And all the immigrant people who come over here, they work hard mm -hmm. to sustain their families. They contribute to the fabric of this country. That's why America is so, such a great country. Talking about DACA, we are talking about children who came here very young, mm -hmm. very young. They want to go to school. They are part of this country. Some of them have been living in the United States. They don't even know where they came from. Right. You know what I'm saying? Absolutely. They are doctors, they are nurses, and also they are business person. I think we got to give them a chance. Because they're contributing. They're contributing. Yes. This is a win-win situation. And as a matter of fact, also, the people with TPS, there are people who have been living in the United States for many years. Right. Their children are American. Right. They are here. We cannot deport them. If they, we deport them, we're going to break their families. Right. Who's going to take care of the children? We are a country who believe, who believe, we believe in family values. And we let do. me say that. Yesterday and Sunday. Well, actually, I, I hate to do this, but we do have to wrap it up. Like, no I problem. have to. But um, I want to say that, you know, thank you. First of all, thank you so much for coming on the show today and talking to us about these issues, because I know they're on a lot of people's minds and they're looking for the representatives to represent them um, and their thoughts and their beliefs. So please keep talking, keep, you know, having the conversation and keep fighting for the people in your district. Thank you much. Next, five years ago, Sandy hit the Gowanus section of Brooklyn with what was called a trifecta of challenges. Sewage overflow, lowland flooding with toxic waters thrown into the mix. Now, developers and planners are gambling on a different kind of future for the canal region. Five years ago Sunday, Hurricane Sandy hit Brooklyn with a fury. The Gowanus section got it bad. Sewage floating in the streets, residents drinking from fire hydrants, and toxic water contamination. It made people question the livability of the area. 
but now it's some of the most coveted real estate in the borough. These next two guests will tell us about how the area is undergoing a transformation, one they hope will prepare it for the next major weather event. Andrea Parker from the Gowanus Canal Conservancy. I'm sorry, it's Andrea. Mm -hmm. I want to make sure I get that right. <laughs> Andrea Parker from the Gowanus Canal Conservancy and urban developer Gina Worth. Welcome to 112BK. Mm -hmm. Landscape architect. Landscape architect. Landscape architect. Yes, right. <laughs> there we go. That's all right. Yeah, yeah. We got it that time. Okay. So, first of all, um, I was wondering, actually, Andrea, if you could just explain to me really quickly how bad was it in Gowanus after it got hit by Sandy? Mm -hmm. um, so, when Sandy hit, there were about seven feet of water um, flooded most of the lowland area, which is really mm -hmm. extends from Fourth Avenue to um, Smith Street. Mm -hmm. um, and with that water was, of course, everything that's in the canal, including a lot of contamination from historic industry as well as ongoing combined sewage overflow. Um, folks that were impacted by it um, were a lot of local businesses um, and some small residential houses, but then really the public housing community, mm -hmm. which experienced, as did many of the housing development <laughs> Sorry, and many of the NYCHA communities around New York City are have been built in low areas near polluted water bodies, um, and this is no different. It was, um, you know, the electricity was lost in Gowanus houses. Mm -hmm. The elevators were down. Um, yes, folks were had to walk down to the fire hydrants to get water, and then walk up many flights of stairs to get to their families. Right. So, what is combined sewage overflow? So, the Gowanus is a super fun site for two reasons. One, mm -hmm. because there was um, historic industry dumped contamination in the canal. Mm -hmm. So the EPA is addressing that through the Superfund, actually dredging out that contamination. Right. The other is ongoing combined sewage overflow. So mm -hmm. essentially every time it rains, our sewage overflows into the canal. Right. Um, so during a typical rainstorm, that's 28 million gallons of sewage. 28 million gallons of sewage. Yes. Okay. First of all, wow. Second <laughs> of all, <laughs> um, did this hit the 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 NYCHA housing? Like, did, did it hit those homes particularly hard, or were they hit just as hard as everyone else? I'm not sure. Um, I would say that they were hit as hard as everyone else during Sandy, but in a typical rainstorm, they live by the largest combined sewage overflow point, so they are most proportionally affected by the odors, which are hideous, mm -hmm. um, as well as actually by um, the first floor toilets backing up into mm. the apartments. That happens on a pretty regular basis when it rains. Oh, wow. Ew. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> I mean, like, I, I want to say something more eloquent than that, but at mm -hmm. the same time, it's pretty gross. kind of gross. Um, can you tell me what's being done right now? to maybe, mm -hmm. you know, help make sure that this, at, at the very least, that we're better prepared for mm -hmm. this kind of weather event mm -hmm. in Gowanus. Well, in terms of the sewage, under the Superfund process, again, um, the city is constructing two large sewage retention tanks, mm -hmm. and they will definitely mitigate the amount of sewage that runs into the canal. Um, we estimate that after that infrastructure, as well as um, rain gardens that they're installing throughout the neighborhood, there will be about 100 million gallons per year. Mm -hmm. which is still a fair amount. Yeah. Um, so that's one reason why we're working with folks like Gina Scape Landscape Architects to right. develop strategies to reduce the amount of stormwater that goes into the combined sewer system. And Gina, how do you play into all of this? Well, we've, um, we at Scape Landscape Architecture have been really playing a role in helping 
crystallize and visualize the vision that um, Andrea and the wider Gowanus community has begun to develop for the canal. One of the goals of the Lowlands Plans is to really, in a very synthetic way, stitch together all of the feedback, kind of really understand how people were impacted during Sandy, understand how people are impacted by the everyday contamination of the canal, but also understand and um, preserve what's loved about the canal. In addition to being a kind of stinky pit of sewage (laughs) and super fun waste, um, it's also a really loved place. It's a really Mm -hmm. unique environment to have this slender canal kind of slicing through the neighborhood. You get incredible reflections. You see incredible wildlife on the canal, even in its really denuded state. And Mm -hmm. so we saw a lot of potential, and the community sees a lot of potential. So the goal of the Lowlands Project is to develop a kind of shared template for how the Gowanus Canal can develop in the future. So when we talk about like making sure that um, the community is involved and that the community is having these conversations, you know, as you guys Mm -hmm. are designing Mm -hmm. and coming up with this vision, Mm -hmm. um, what does that mean as far as, you know, this place is going from a situation where some people would call it a blight, Mm -hmm. some, um, into a situation where it's becoming coveted area. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But what does that mean for the people who have lived there, especially people who are lower income? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's a huge question, and it's not just a huge question in the Gowanus, it's in a huge question in many developing uh, neighborhoods yeah. of, of Brooklyn and all of New York City. Right. Um, and it's something that we take quite seriously. Mm-hmm. I think what the Gowanus Canal Conservancy has done is tried to create a template for things that people want to see both change in the future, but also be preserved in the future. Mm-hmm. And that's really spurred by a kind of wide, wide level of community feedback and kind of solicitation of input that's still ongoing. But, it, and, and I think Andrea can talk more about that because she's really been the one out there kind of interfacing with all those different groups and getting um, kind of different opinions and thoughts about what the canal should be in the future. Uh, But I also think um, it's a little bit about recognizing that change is happening and there's these very large forces already at way that are mobilizing and activating change. Mm -hmm. The Superfund process will absolutely change the character of the canal. It's going to change the environmental quality of the canal for the positive. It's a a great thing. It's going to take many years to fully complete, but that's a a force that's underway. Yes. Uh, The other force that's underway is climate change, Mm -hmm. the way the Gowanus receives water is changing over time. Mm. This is both from large um, surge events like Sandy, but also from everyday rain events like Andrea was mentioning, with the waters really coming into the lowland area. The reason the canal and its surrounding neighborhood faces all of these challenges is because it's built on filled marsh. The Gowanus used to be a meandering tidal creek that had a really wide floodplain, and people over time filled in that floodplain and developed on that floodplain. So if you look at a historic map of the Gowanus Marsh and you look at today's floodable area or flood-prone area, they're very similar. Um, so, but but it's being exacerbated with climate change, with increased rain events. So, what is this going to look like in ten years? So. I think it's it's a great question, <laughs> um, but I think uh, the the whole point of the the lowlands process um, is to not suggest there's one singular vision for what mm. it looks like in ten years, but that it's really an additive and flexible framework for development of the future. The other piece of the project, mm-hmm. the other kind of change agent at the table, is the, the Department of City Planning is undergoing a places study that will likely rezone and upzone parts of the neighborhood. So more development. Wow development is likely to happen here. 
So the plan, the Lowlands plan, tries to anticipate that right. and suggest what could happen in tandem with those forces of right. climate change, development, and sea level rise. So there's a lot to consider, and we're going to keep <laughs> this conversation going. Um, but we have to wrap up right now. And thank you both so much for coming here and for providing us with this information that we absolutely needed about Gowanus and about like this plan to really revitalize the area. I'm looking forward to seeing what happens. Um, next Halloween, economics and what to check on the 31st if you don't already have plans. This year, Americans will spend around $9 billion on Halloween. Decorations, candy, costumes, etc. That's more than the GDP of many small countries. What are we spending all this money on? Here to tell us is Alicia Adamchek, reporter from Money.com. Welcome to 112BK. Alicia, what are we spending all that money on? I have to know. Uh, well, lots on pet costumes. No, most of it's on just costumes in general, about right. $3.4 uh, million dollars, which seems like a lot, or billion actually. Oh my gosh. <laughs> uh, like 350 million of that on pets alone. So I don't know if you have a pet. I don't have a pet, but Alicia, I did go to a um, a puppy parade, okay. a Halloween parade this weekend. It was my first time going. Apparently, it's a Brooklyn tradition over in Fort Greene Park, okay. really close to here. Um, and I got to tell you about one costume I saw, because as soon as you said pet costumes, I was like, okay. Yes, because this weekend I saw a woman create a caterpillar costume for her dog, and it was like a moving, it moved like a caterpillar across the stage. It was at least four feet long. And then she pulled the dog out of it, and the dog had on a butterfly costume. Oh my gosh. It was A, the most magical thing I've ever seen, B, one of the most ridiculous things I've ever seen in my entire life. Well, what kind of dog was it? Can I? I know? believe it was a, a dachshund, okay. but it was a very small Cute. dog, if okay. nothing else. So wh what I'm hearing is that people like this lady and her what was called a caterpupper, um, <laughs> or a pupperfly, um, they're the people who are really spending this much money on Halloween. Yeah, so again, $3.4 billion on costumes. I didn't spend anything on a costume this year, but I guess no. a lot of other people did. Um, like $2.5 billion on candy. $2.5 billion on candy. Something like that. Okay. Maybe a little bit more. Wow. Uh, about the same on decorations. So. Out. Yeah, it's a little crazy. And then, of course, haunted houses is, you know, a right. whole other industry. It's a real different. industry. Oh, yeah. There's, yeah. you know, I think last count it was something like 2500 throughout the world. And if you wow. think it's like $40 to go to one, you can make a lot of money off of uh, running a haunted house these days. Wow. Yeah. Do you have any idea what the most popular candy is for Halloween? Well, so I think they only break, so I know like it's chocolate and then I think like chewy and then right. like Smarties or something like that, <laughs> right. whatever that category is. But within chocolate, I mean, I think polling, it's usually like Reese's or Reese's. things like that. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. That actually makes a lot of sense. So while it's a ton of money, it's still not as much as some holidays, right? Right. It's actually pretty low on the list, um, which I was surprised about. It's about 86 per person, $86. and. Father's Day is more Mother's Day, Easter, Valentine's Day, everything's more than Halloween. <laughs> Are you like a person who is like, oh no, I have to have a new costume every year and like buy something? 
No. So this year I spent nothing on Halloween. Yeah. Um, and I'm the person who waits until the day after to get the candy half off because I just, oh. I mean, no one's coming to my walk up in Brooklyn to like knock at my door. So. Absolutely. You're a girl after my frugal heart. Okay. I'm, I'm the same in many aspects. Now we're going to move to our list of things that you can do on Halloween night. Um, here are a few things to check out if you don't already have plans. The annual Halloween 313 in Clinton Hill at 313 Clinton Avenue, they shut down the street and it's a mob scene. There are performances by theater professionals. Every year is a different, a different theme. If you haven't been, it's a must. There's also Madame Morbid's holiday tours. That says it all. Going now until December through the ghostly and ghastly streets of the borough. There's also Nighthawk Halloween, a haunted house in the Pavilion Theater, which Nighthawk took over and will open with dinner and a movie next year. That's from the 3rd until the 5th. House of Yes in Bushwick will be hosting the Gala of the Gone. There's also Pumpkin Impaling, where a local artist impale pumpkins on the pikes of an iron fence in Cobble Hill. Back after a three-year hiatus, oh, what did we do without you, Pumpkin <laughs> Impaling? Thanks for joining us today on 112BK. Next time, Matthew Eugene's challenger in the city council race and the originator of the Me Too movement. One One Two BK is hosted by me, Ashley Ford, and is produced by Ross Tuttle, Fred Brown, Shireen Bargi, Emily Bogosian, and Kritzi Roberts. Our show is edited by Clinton Filson Jr. and Kyrell Palmer, and is recorded by our studio technical director, Eric Hagasek. Our executive producers are Aziz Aisham, Jonathan Leaf, and Sasha Mathias. If you want to get in touch, you can leave us a comment, tweet us using the hashtag 112BK, email us at 112BKpodcast at gmail.com, or leave a message at 347-504-0801. And make sure you subscribe to the show on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, or whichever podcatcher you use. 112BK is part of the Brick Radio family. For more information on this and all Brick Radio podcasts, visit brickartsmedia.org slash radio.